Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is the CEO of Synergy. And Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the complex issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare compliance, government benefit preservation, and structured settlements and settlement planning. Joining me on Trial Lawyer View is a very special guest, Sarah Williams. She's an accomplished trucking accident and wrongful death litigator. Sarah is an attorney with Alexander Shinura Trial Attorneys, where she handles, as I said, primarily trucking litigation and wrongful death. Sarah has collected over $25 million in verdicts and settlements on behalf of her clients, including a $12 million verdict against the Birmingham Max bus system in 2017. And in her spare time, she's also an adjunct professor of trial advocacy at Cumberland School of Law, where she teaches advanced skills in trial advocacy and depositions. She also serves as a coach, again, in her spare time, (laughs) the Cumberland School of Law nationally ranked mock trial team. She is a 2003 graduate of Florida State, go Knowles, and a 2006 graduate of Cumberland School of Law. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about your firm and your practice in particular. So our firm is an interesting hybrid advertising and litigation firm. Um, I joined the firm in 2013, along with eventually 10 of my partners from an insurance defense firm, um, when the decision was made to kind of switch gears and not just settle cases, but to be able to have a presence in the state as a preeminent trial firm. And now we we try more cases than any other firm, um, any other civil firm in the state. And so... Um, it's been a it's been a great run. We do and we handle everything from slip and falls to catastrophic truck cases. Um, we have over sixty lawyers now. We are in over six states now, um, and it's been interesting. I was probably the twentieth lawyer hired in in in, in two thousand thirteen. So we've scaled and um, but we we like to be able to be a full service litigation firm, and that is what Alex has. That was his vision, and he has, I think, accomplished it. So what was it like, that transition from being an insurance defense lawyer and then joining a rapidly growing plaintiff personal injury practice? It's been so much fun. Um, I tell folks all the time, like, I am having the most fun I've ever had practicing law. It was, I will say, and I tell all my defense lawyer buddies, like, y'all have no idea I work harder than I ever worked on this side of the V because there are all those things that we didn't have to deal with as defense lawyers, the liens, right? Subrogation, Medicare, um, you know, all those things that we don't have to think about. But then also in terms of managing your clients, you are getting them a lot of times when they are dealing with the worst thing that has ever happened to them. Um, and so that has, you know, been a growth and kind of learning that, um, skill set on how to manage that. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. I don't miss billing hours and drafting reports. So, (laughs) yeah, you know, I, I was doing insurance defense work before I got into the settlement services world and I, I, the billable hours thing just killed me on top of just not loving what I was doing, just representing, you know, big insurance companies or big companies like I did Walmart insurance uh, workers comp defense work. And, you know, I just thought, hey, I'm, I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution. But, you know, on the plaintiff side, you you get the opportunity to really be part of that solution. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned just this, you know, 
this idea of we're we're dealing with people when they've experienced something catastrophic, life-changing, oftentimes. And that's something I really try to emphasize with our team is the importance of empathy and realizing that we we have the opportunity to do some good for somebody that's really at at a, a low point where they're transitioning from having gone through typically grueling litigation. And um, I, I was involved in a pretty significant accident in 2016, and I got to experience all that firsthand. And, you know, I, I tip my hat to, to all of you who are trial lawyers and litigators who have that person from that point, that, that low point, and try to, you know, take them from a, a place where, you know, they've, they've been injured significantly or someone's been killed and, and figure out a way to, to secure compensation for them. It's, it's a pretty important function that you serve. It's such a privilege. And you know, the, the funny thing is, I think that we think of, so like my, my clients who have been catastrophically injured are always very appreciative but I think what has been most humbling for me is even, you know, in a soft tissue car wreck case, like for so many people having a vehicle, especially in the South where we don't have mass transit, that's very efficient. Having a vehicle is your lifeline. It's you, you got to have one to get groceries. If you live in certain places, you got to get to work. Um, and so, you know, not having access to your car and maybe not having the money to get it fixed and having medical bills, expenses, you know, so many people are one paycheck away from, you know, being homeless, which we've seen with the pandemic, you know, how missing a couple of paychecks or one paycheck has affected real people. And so the, the most humbling experience I had when we first came over, um, I got a case and, I mean, I, I think I settled it for like 15,000 bucks, but it put, you know, four or $5,000 in my client's pocket. And she was, she had just graduated from high school. And my sister-in-law is a manager at a local McDonald's. And she said, Hey, you know, one of your former clients is working for me and she loves you so much. Like she thinks you are the best lawyer ever. And I was like, I mean, I got her, you know, a couple thousand bucks. And she, um, she said, I'm going to put her on the phone so she can tell you. She said, it, it may not seem like a lot of money to you, Miss Williams, but I was able to buy a car, which allowed me to go to nursing school because the nursing school was not in a place where I could go. And it also allowed me to get this job. And so, you know, just that settlement has opened up all of these possibilities for me, um, that I didn't feel I had before. And I was like, you know, I think sometimes we take for granted how, like, I think we think about the big ones and we're like, this is life changing for someone, but it really doesn't take much often to, you know, to be, to have an effect on someone. And so that I try to keep her experience in the back of my mind. Um, because it is a really humble, it's a privilege to be able to do what we do. Yeah, I agree. And and that's, I talk about that a lot, that fact with our lien resolution team, because if they get a lien waived or a significant reduction on an ERISA plan or Medicare, Medicaid, what whatever it might be, those are dollars that go directly to help that person, whether it's to buy a car so they can get further education, like you talked about for your client or additional care they might need if they're, you know, more catastrophically injured. It's, you know, we're, we're fighting big insurance or the government to get more dollars put into that, that person's pocket who needs them a lot more than, you know, an ERISA plan, for example. <laughs> That's right. right? I, I always have that argument with insurance defense lawyers. It's like, well, you can get a reduction. And it's like, you know what? The, the person who gets the benefit of that reduction should not be the person who caused the injury, right? So yep. I'm not going to factor that reduction in in my negotiation, and you should not either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what what led you to become a trial lawyer in the first place? Did you know you always wanted to be a lawyer? No, you know, I didn't. Um, <laughs> I love to read. I love. I was an English lit major, but back then I didn't. I, I didn't really like little kids, and so I knew I didn't want to teach English. 
Um, <laughs> and so my counselor was essentially like, well, for your skill set, because um, math is not your thing, um, for your skill set, I recommend law school. And I was like, okay. And I did my research and it was the fastest growing job is a corporate lawyer. So that was my plan. I went to Cumberland. My plan was to, um, apply for the MBA. They have a joint degree, um, program after my first year. And, um, that was, that's where I was headed because my research had shown that that was the fastest growing field for lawyers. And, um, I had a great mentor, um, in law school who was at that time, he was the third year. He was the chief judge of, of Cumberland's trial advocacy board. And he made me do the first year mock trial competition. I had no plans to do it and I did it and I loved it. You know, it, it was just, um, it was such an amazing experience for me. And so after that I, I did more competitions and tried out for, for the team. And so, I knew coming out of law school, I wanted to try cases and like, it really didn't matter for me. I knew I didn't want to put people in jail, so I didn't want to be a prosecutor. But other than that, like at the time where I graduated, it didn't matter where I went. I just knew I wanted to try cases. So that's kind of informed like my decision-making in my career. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like being a black female attorney in Birmingham, Alabama? What have your experiences been like? It's kind of weird because it's, it, there are um, so few of us. Obviously, the largest com concentration of black women lawyers in Alabama is Birmingham. Um, and I am lucky enough to have a very close-knit group of friends from that community um, but it can be frustrating. I, I think, you know, the thing that we deal with the most is in terms of being pigeonholed at, at firms. And I, I was blessed to not be. Um, and I appreciate the firms I worked with not only assigning me to cases in predominantly black um, counties or not only bringing me out when the, the client who is worried about diversity um, is around. Uh, and I, so I think there's a, there's a huge risk of that. And then there's, you know, the good old boy network that exists, you know, and, and here in the South it's called the good old boy network. It exists in every state in the union. Um, and so it is a, so that's one of the struggles. And then there's, there's also this, um, I think that we have, we internalize this idea that I can't be myself, right? And so for a, for a lot of, and I see this with a lot of my students um, who are black women, you put on this voice and it's almost like a mask and you kind of close up and so you're not vulnerable. Um, you don't want to expose your real self to your firm. You don't really trust them um, with being who you are. And I think that holds us back. Um, and so I really try to, to preach and that's kind of been my thing on my platform. Like you have to live authentically, whoever you are. Um, and that has served me well. I try cases from the top to the bottom of the state. I actually joke with, uh, Alex that for some reason, uh, he has decided I rarely get assignments in predominantly black counties. Most of the, the cases that I have are North Alabama, um, which tends to be pretty conservative, but what I have found is, I think when you are comfortable with who you are and you are just authentic in front of a jury, I, th I think that that lawyers factor in race too much when evaluating what a jury is going to do. I think at the end of the day, like if you're just a normal person, most of us have similar experiences. And like if you're just real, people are going to... Um, react to that and people are going to appreciate that and people are going to listen to you. But if you sound like they can tell that you're not yourself. I, so I, I think that's a struggle that we have just because, you know, we've grown up with that fear of, of being authentically ourselves. And are you going to be the angry perceived as an angry black woman? And, you know, at a certain point, yeah, I'm just going to be me. And if you think I'm angry, then okay, I can't control that, you know? Um, and so that has served me well. Um, but that, that, those are the things that can be problematic for black women lawyers in, in this state. So I don't want to get too political on you, but you know, the, the last four years seem to have really 
polarize the country and you know in my opinion we're we're just very negative times i'm curious if you felt any impact in alabama as a result of sort of what's gone on nationally um which seems to have taken a step back unfortunately for for the country so as much flack as we get in in our state i I will say i think that we are more accustomed to having overt conversations about race because the civil rights movement you know was founded here And, and and so i think that I've, I have had some, even if I don't agree, and even if I, I have a ton of friends who are conservative leaning, but we are able to have like good conversations and like not scream at each other and not hate each other and not, you know, unfriend each other on Facebook. And I, I do think it's because we are uniquely situated to have dealt with a lot of, we've been having those conversations for a long time in this state. Um, and, and so I don't think we felt it as acutely, um, as certain States where they've kind of been pretending for, for some years that they, everybody's kind of kumbaya. And then we learned the last four years, uh, that there are a lot of people in a lot of States that were blue that hold some viewpoints that, um, are not necessarily consistent with the principles we thought they had. And so I think, that's really the problem is, you know, the states where they weren't having the conversations, everybody's kind of just been going along. Um, we've been dealing with it. So other than last year, obviously for everyone last year, um, kind of upended some things. I don't think the last four years have been as groundbreaking for our state. All right. So getting back to, to the practice of law, what is there any one specific case that you've handled that, you thought was the most influential or important that you've handled and why? Mm. So I will, you know, one of the, the cases that I, that motivated me to seek out a change in what I was doing. The last big case I tried as an insurance defense lawyer was a death wrongful death case. And a little nine year old girl had been drowned and I, was brought into the case kind of after discovery. I was brought in just to try the case. And um, it was really, really sad. What was frustrating to me about it was I didn't think, and they may hear this, but whatever. I didn't think the plaintiff's lawyers were very effective in the way they tried the case. And I thought to myself, we are winning this case, not because we have the better facts, but because we have the better trial lawyers. And my former boss, Rad Gaines, is an amazing trial lawyer. and He and I together are like a, a very tough one-two punch. And um, I remember winning that case and getting a defense verdict and feeling awful. It didn't feel good. And I, and it's, I said to myself, like, if, if this doesn't feel good, this is where your career is going. These are the types of cases you're going to be trying. This is where you are. Um, you've got to do something different because this is what you've been working towards and now you've gotten it and, and you're looking at this family who didn't receive justice because of you, right? And, and so that case has been the most pivotal for me because it was the case that motivated me to, to seek out doing something different. So I know you've been a leader amongst trial lawyers in your state, helping to educate soon-to-be lawyers. What drives you in that regard? So when I when I started law school, I was like, if you were to meet somebody from from high school and college, um, they'd be like, Sarah is doing what? Because I was so shy and kind of reserved. But it really was that. I just never felt comfortable. You know, I never felt, I never had like a place where I felt comfortable being myself. You you always, you're too much, you're too aggressive, you're too this or whatever. Um, And so for me, the trial advocacy program at Cumberland really created that home for me where I finally felt comfortable 
being myself and being confident and all the things I'm an army brat. So it's like some of my experiences are different. I don't have a very distinct Southern accent, you know, like I, I, I almost like it wasn't like I had a home. I, like I had a, a group that was just mine. Um, and that group became just mine. Like this is, these are my people. Um, and they made me feel like I, I was comfortable just being myself. And that has allowed me to be comfortable in making career changes and being grounded in who I was. And it has been the most influential aspect of my legal career um, and my legal education. And so they gave so much to me. Like I want to make sure that I'm giving back because um, it was so pivotal for me. Like I feel like I have a responsibility to continue to do that for others. So is there something specific that you enjoy about teaching soon to be lawyers, the, the things that you teach them? Um, it is I, part of it is part of what I enjoy about teaching is seeing someone go from that like baby stage where they're uncomfortable. And then when they finally just like settle in it's the greatest feeling to me. And so part of it is selfish because I'm constantly seeking that feeling. Um, but I also enjoy the relationships that I formed when I was a, the young cool coach um, and, and it's close in age to my students. I mean, they've become some of my best friends. You know, we attended each other's weddings and their children called me Aunt Sarah. And, and they are just like, you know, almost brothers and sisters to me, like very close. And then now, um, the mentees that I've developed and the, those relationships are just, they're, they're priceless. And so that, that drives it a lot. Um, building those relationships with just amazing people. Yeah. I think I may know the answer to this, but why, why teach trial advocacy? Why, why focus on that topic? That's what I know. <laughs> so I'm a firm believer in like, don't try to do something. Like if you're not good at something, you know, don't try to fake it. And I've been asked to teach like other subjects. And I'm just like, look, that's going to be one too much work for me. Cause I'm going to have to figure it out. <laughs> um, but it is, I, I also think I never expected for it to be a career for me. And so, and I think that there's so much, you know, a lot of my students will say, or, or students will say to me, well, I don't want to be a plaintiff's lawyer. I don't want to be a DA. But what I've learned is there are so many careers they don't talk to us about in law school. You know, there's IP litigation, there's regular, there's banking litigation. Like, I think having that skill set opens up just an amazing opportunities for people. And it's something, I just think the traditional law school you got to work at this defense firm. I mean, I'm sure it was like that at your law school. Like everyone, like if you didn't get a job at a defense firm, it was like shame for, on you. I guess you're going to have to go do these other things. And now that, you know, we're 15 years out, the people who went and did the other things are so happy. you know. And so I, I like, I really enjoy, um, I enjoy teaching, you know, when I'm done practicing, that's probably what I would do full time. Cause I see myself as being like, the really old lady who's still in the game, <laughs> God willing. Um, so yeah, so that's what I enjoy teaching. And it, it is the thing that, that I like the most. I have found, and I've taught some classes on subjects that I didn't really love. Like I teach a depositions class and I love 30 B six depositions, but I didn't love teaching. And so I kind of have put that to the side. Um, so yeah, that's a long way of answering that question. <laughs> so I, another question related is, what is the mock trial experience like as a coach for an experienced litigator as yourself? Are you super critical or are you, you know, able to divorce yourself from thinking along the lines of this is what I would be doing and realizing that they don't have that, that knowledge base? Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how my students answer this question. I, I am tough on them. Um, I'm tough, but I'm also in a very loving way. Um, the, the primary thing that I think eventually, 
you know, most students get the form. Like they, they understand how to ask a question. They understand how to write a cross-examination. The biggest struggle that we really have in coaching and in teaching is in, te- is in getting these students out of the, the mindset that they have to try to pretend to be something else. Um, I coach with a judge in Tuscaloosa County and judge Jim Roberts. And he always says, you know, the, the thing, the worst thing that you can do to become a lawyer is the one thing you have to do to become a lawyer. And that is go to law school. Um, you know, because we all have this idea of we're give, we're, we're programmed this idea of what lawyers sound like and a lawyer sounds like this and you don't sound like a lawyer when the reality is, in my opinion, um, we like you, what, whatever it is that you sound like is what a lawyer sounds like because you are a lawyer. You know, there is no lawyer voice. Um, and so that's what we struggle with a lot is getting our students one to feel comfortable with themselves and who they are. But then also, you know, I think so many lawyers don't cross into, um, what I call greatness because they are so closed off. And I, I don't know, how you do what we do and, and you can't emotionally connect. Like I, I believe being vulnerable and, and emotionally connecting with your client and, and with the case is imperative to really doing a good job and advocating for your client, irrespective of what side of the V you're on. And I, I, I think that we get, it's like ingrained in us that you, you're a lawyer and you have to be objective and objectivity. And so, so, so often people become emotionally closed off. And I, I think there's a difference from viewing facts objectively and being able to evaluate both sides to not emotionally connecting with your client's case and your client's injuries and your client's situation. Like, I don't know how people stand up and argue for damages when they view their clients, you know, kind of, you know, their cases and their, and their experience without connecting to it. So that is, that is, is a big aspect of what I harp on. And, um, I always tell my students, I'm going to get Brene Brown on you. Like (laughs) we're going to, we're going to go deep. Um, and you're, there's probably going to be a a class where you feel like crying or, uh, you know, practice where you want to cry, which is okay. Like I know, we know we've broken the wall, um, because I just, I think so many people are closed off. And so that, um, I am tough for sure. Um, but I don't try to create little Sarah's because I have an ego. There will never be another Sarah Williams. Um, so they, I tell them like, you're not going to be me and you don't need to be me. Like you need to be you. Um, so that's, that's my teaching philosophy. It's interesting that that idea of connecting and how do you connect as a lawyer you know, to that person's case? Because when I had my accident, that was sort of one of the things that went through my mind is I really never truly understood. And I, you know, sat through thousands of mediations with people that have been seriously injured, but I really didn't have such a, a an understanding until I actually have been through it the the ability to connect and be able to convey that person's case is you know is incredibly important and i think a, a i think an acquired talent over time that you know successful trial lawyers the, the ones that i've worked with seem to have that that part you know figured out i agree i think that it is the thing and it's a difficult thing to do to um, connect emotionally, but then you also have to be removed enough that you can, like, you can view your bad facts if you've got some bad facts, right? And in such a way, you know, to, to adequately evaluate and realistically evaluate your case. I think that is why what we do is so hard. Um, and it's why, you know, not everyone's great at it, right? It is a, it is a skill to balance those two things. And I, I don't think everyone um, recognizes that, but I'm a firm believer. If you can get both, if you can attach yourself and, and really understand the emotional aspect of your the damages in your case and how it truly affects someone and really... Um, 
open yourself up to feeling, to trying to recognize what that would feel like. Um, and then also be able to say, okay, I'm, I'm, that is, I understand the emotion and I also understand the legal framework that we have to work in. To me that like when you can put those two things together, you're like the Voltron of, um, of trial lawyers. You, you can, you've really got it figured out. Yeah, and then, cause that allows you to adequately convey it to the jury, which hopefully then processes it and, you know, does the right thing for your client, right? That's exactly right. All right, so I wanna ask you a little bit uh, about some things connected to the business of the practice of law. Is there anything that you see kind of coming down the path that will be a market disruption in the personal injury practice? You know, what we, the one thing we have been very concerned with, um, with our model are insurance companies, like auto insurance companies really squeezing um, and forcing those cases to be tried. Because from a cost perspective, I think there are a lot of firms that handle those cases with the expectation that they're going to resolve and they don't expect or anticipate the cost of trying those cases. Because, you know, the cost of trying a, a whiplash case is going to be the same cost as trying a broken bone case. You've got one doctor in both, you know, um, in each one. So the costs are the same, but the recovery is not. And, and so I, I think that um, that is something that we have got to deal with and figure out. Uh, I worry that, that smaller firms will get squeezed on those and just stop taking them. And that will be a disservice to the community. But that's a that's a serious concern um, that I have in terms of the traditional cases that, that, that most folks handle. What about, are there any trends in the practice that you believe are important that, you know, you, you, you see as either threats or positive things for the, for the practice? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, COVID is, I feel like, you know, we've been talking a lot uh, at conferences about autonomous vehicles, which I just, I, I'm not a believer that, that those are, are a real threat. Um, I can't think of anything offhand that I think, um, I worry about um, the judiciary. You know, Trump was able to appoint a number of, um, very conservative judges, but I will say this, I think that, um, we are oftentimes surprised by people who have lifetime appointments by the face they put on before they had the lifetime appointment. And then when they get it, they're like, this is who I really was. And, and y'all thought I was really conservative, but I'm not. Um, so, so I am, I try to be very optimistic. I'm like the most optimistic person. Um, you've ever met. And so that worries me in terms of, um, you know, qualified immunity and um, some different claims that and issues that I think we all want to challenge as trial lawyers. It worries me to have a very conservative judiciary. But I am hopeful. I think one of the things that 2020 gave all of us um, was the opportunity to really look at ourselves and, and take some time and examine our beliefs and our country and how people are really affected by certain policies. And so I am hopeful that irrespective of the political beliefs um, some of these judges may hold, that they will do the right thing. But I'm worried about, you know... I, I, Obviously, we're going to be worried if, if they if they rule on cases consistent with, you know, what the their the expectation was, then those judges are going to be problems for the plaintiff's bar. Yeah. What about COVID? Do you think that some of the alterations to the practice, like doing things via Zoom, is that stuff that you think is going to permanently change the practice or do you think things eventually will go back to more or less the way they were before? 
I don't, I don't know. I, I can, I would imagine that there are a lot of insurance companies saying to themselves, Hey, you didn't have to incur the expense of flying to California and you took a fairly effective deposition and we were able to, to move this case. I would, I honestly would hope that is what comes out of all of this because what I have found, I mean, I have taken 50 plus Zoom depositions in the past year. What I appreciated about our state bar is they came out early saying, y'all have a responsibility to keep these cases moving. I know in a lot of states, lawyers stuck their heads in the sand. Um, And so that was helpful for us. But I worry that, you know, as a former defense lawyer, that people are not, are going to want to, to, have that billable time with the traveling and meeting with somebody in person. And, um, so I worry that, that even though it will be more efficient, that it won't really latch on. Um, but for me and my clients, it's, you know, if I can save them the cost of a flight to California and, you know, those deposition costs on top of it, plus meals and rental cars and, you know, all those things that are incurred in those cases, if I can do it and effectively litigate their case, I think it's in their best interest. Um, what does concern me about COVID in the courts are, you know, most courts, if they handle both criminal and civil, are obviously because there's a constitutional right in criminal cases to a speedy trial, if they are trying cases, they are criminal cases. And there are some, there's a sprinkling of courts that have been trying some civil cases. Um, we've had a couple tried here. They didn't go so well. Um, in, in the smaller counties, they did. They went, they went surprisingly fine. But in, in like Jefferson County, which is where Birmingham sits, um, I don't, I think that, that we still need to figure out how we're going to do this. But I really worry about not having that um, leverage, you know, saying, well, okay, cool. We'll, we'll just file the case and try it. And typically it was a year and a half and we've got a trial date. And now I'm having to tell my clients, if I file it today, I expect a trial date in 2022, but realistically it'll probably be 2023 before we actually get this case tried because you've got all the cases from last year, you know, that did not get tried and they got to get tried before this one. You've got all the cases that were set for 2021 that then have to be tried. And so the delay in in injustice is going to be significant. Um, And that's a real problem with COVID. Yeah. Curious, you know, being involved in your firm's leadership from a business aspect, what do you think is the most important thing for lawyers to understand about operating a law firm? I could talk about this for for a long time. So I think several, several things. My biggest takeaways from being in leadership, you have to focus on your people. I think that most firms keep people on for too long, right? That, that need to go somewhere else that really aren't a great fit um, and just trying to force it. And so I think it is important that the people who represent your firm are aligned with your firm's goals and, and what you are attempting to achieve. Because if they are not, you end up wasting time dealing with the problems created by people who are not in alignment with your vision of the firm. Um, And, you know, leadership decides on the vision and you're either on board or you're not on board. And if you're not on board, then this is not the place for you. Um, And I think that so often we try to force people to be on board with our vision when the reality is, look, it's okay for us not to agree on the vision, but, but, you know, the people of this firm are are going to be on board with the vision. Um, and, and I, I think that we underestimate, um, how disruptive being in misalignment is, 
so that on, on the kind of personnel perspective from a growth perspective, I think a lot of law firms during COVID scaled back and kind of like, or like squirrels. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm going to dig my hole. I'm going to put my nuts in my hole and I'm going to cover it up. And then I'm just going to sit and like shiver. Um, and not be aggressive. And, and these are the time times where I think you need to be aggressive. I mean, Alex, our firm has, you know, I mean, we've built the reputation for being a billboard. Um, he's the billboard king, which didn't help much during COVID, right? So then, you know, now he's the king of digital marketing. Um, but he was very aggressive last year, um, which caused me a great deal of stress. But we were very aggressive. We bought a firm in New Orleans, a firm in Boston, a firm in Houston, in Dallas, in Nashville, in Memphis, um, and and really brought on a, a good number of lawyers. And we've been okay. You know, I think that you got to just continue. You can't you can't operate from a place of fear. And so many firm owners do that. They let go of their staff, right? We picked up some great employees um, because if you just keep, you just got to keep pedaling. You got to keep pedaling. It will all be okay. Um, we will figure it out. And we have, and, and we haven't missed a beat. Um, and have we had some dips? Yes. But, you know, we're going to push through it. And so I think, you know, just not, not, not running your business from a place of fear. Is such a is such an important point to make. Yeah, I'm a student of of culture and in the workplace, and you know one of the things that I've continued to harp on is our mission and making sure that people that join our company know that our mission is to improve the lives of catastrophically injured. And if you're if you don't want that, if you don't want to to be of that kind of service, then you're in the wrong place, right? Sure. And that idea of, of having people that really buy into your mission and vision is such an important thing. And and we were aggressive too last year. We we kept expanding and we hired more people when most were were simply like you said, kind of crawling into a shell. And I think those are those are important things to to have long term success in what you're doing especially when you're you're in a growth mode too i think those are those two things put together are, are what pushes you through tough tougher times like we've had absolutely absolutely um I, you know we'll we will emerge from we will emerge from this you know and and you'll your business will either emerge from it better or you know you not um, but I think all of that starts with leadership. And if you handle, if you portray fear, then your, your team is going to be afraid. Right. Um, and so from, I think we have to have to convey that aspect of, you know, safety and calm, you know, things are going to be okay. We'll figure this out. There's nothing you do at the office that you can't do at home. Like we'll, we're going to figure this out. Yeah, absolutely. So being, being a firm that does a lot of advertising, what in your opinion is sort of the most important thing in marketing for law firms these days? I think if a firm does not have a digital presence, they are doing themselves a great disservice. I just, as, listen, we, we continue to ha have our billboards because that's part of our brand as a firm. And it also, you know, keeps competition from, from getting those billboards. But the reality is, I, and, and think about with television. I mean, we're still on TV a lot, but most folks are cutting the cord with cable. And so I yeah. just think the traditional aspects, the, the traditional avenues of advertising are changing. And I, what I like about digital advertising is the buy-in is not as expensive as a billboard or a TV spot in certain markets. You know, our market is surprisingly one of the most competitive uh, television markets for lawyer advertising in the country. Um, 
And so if you are just starting out or you have a smaller firm or you have a smaller advertising budget, you don't have it. You you can't compete in that space. But I mean, anyone with any sort of budget can compete in the digital space. And that's what I really like about it. And it's been very odd to me that more firms have not examined digital marketing as um, a viable advertising option for their firms. Yeah, I'm, I follow Alexander on LinkedIn and I see he's constantly doing stuff and getting content out there, but also personal stuff too, which is really kind of cool to see somebody utilizing that platform as a way of, you know, deepening their, their, you know, market position. It's, it's, I, I, I agree with you there. There's really very few firms that are, are doing it. Like I've seen what Alexander's doing. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the, the gripes we, we get, um, and we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. We've got some new proposed bar rules, I am a firm believer that through digital advertising, our clients and potential clients have the opportunity to really figure out who we are. If you go to my Instagram, which is public, you know where I've spoken, you know where that I teach, you know that I'm, you know, out in an, on an inspection, you know that I have a, you know, a husband and a little girl and you, you know more about me then in order to make an informed decision, then you traditionally would just saying, well, hey, you know, my buddy Sarah is a PI lawyer, you should call her. And then you go to the website and that tells you a little bit, you know, and so what that's one of the things we really developed with him. You know, we thought about people know of you as the billboard guy, right? They know of you as the TV guy, but he's such an amazing person. I will tell you, he has been one of the most, I feel like in life you get these like pivotal people that you meet. Um, and Alex is just, he's an amazing mentor. He's a really good friend. Um, he is just such a great person. And I feel like you don't get to that sense of him just in the billboards and just on the TV. And so I'm glad that it, you know, we're hoping that that comes through with like his personal social media, because I think that as a person, he is one of the best people I've ever met. Um, people need to know that, you know, when evaluating whether to, to hire our firm. Yeah, it does come through, by the way. I, obviously, I, I've not met him personally, but I feel like I know a little bit about him from the things that he puts on LinkedIn because it is, it, it does show some of that more personal side, which admittedly, I probably should do more of that, you know, but it's it, it takes it takes some, you know, confidence and you know uh time and effort and you know there there's there's certainly something to it though i think in the end to have that kind of presence it's definitely time consuming (laughs) um and it's funny i have some students um what i love about millennials is they are so creative and they are really rejecting in large part like this traditional law firm setting i have a a former student who uh, just left her, you know, blue blood firm, and she is now an influencer lawyer, and she's a digital social media influencer. But she um, drafts contracts for influencers, reviews contracts, deal. And I was just like, how amazing is that? And it's there's such a need for it. And but it is like I talked to her about the work. Like it, she's working probably harder doing that and cre- having to constantly create content and edit the content than she is, than she had to when she was at a firm, you know, busting it for 60 hours a week. So um, it is definitely hard work. But I, I think there is an expectation, especially with, I mean, when you hit the folks in the, their 30s on down, I think there is an expectation that you have a presence on social media for them to evaluate you. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm curious, you, you had mentioned a little bit about the vision and people. What What is the culture like in your law firm? It sounds like, you know, from the way you talk about Alex, that it 
it sounds like it's a really, you know, kind of progressive, um, supportive type of culture, which, you know, I mean, I, the law firms that I was part of and, and you know, was limited to insurance defense firms, but we're just not like that. So it really, we have a very interesting uh, dynamic at our firm because each lawyer is essentially an independent department. And so like with my team, I have a paralegal, a case manager, a medical records clerk, and then two law clerks who work just for me. And so we're kind of confined. We have our own little culture. And so you'll find that at our firm, our culture kind of varies from department to department. Um, and then in between the two groups. So we have lawyers who um, are pre litigation and that's all they do and that's their desire like if they want to try cases they they are more than welcome to um but then we have a, you know a team of lawyers who primarily just litigate um and so that's the the building we have seven buildings in the, in the city so that's yeah. the building that i'm in and our culture here um and it's one of the things i love about working on a team is it's really collaborative um which what I love about that is there's not this idea of like someone could come into my office to talk to me about a catastrophic case. And I'm not like, I should have that case. And you know what I mean? There's not this, like we yeah. all want each other to be successful. Now, granted half of us work together at our old insurance defense firm. So we've kind of grown up in the law together. Um, but I love that. I love, you know, cheering, sitting in and listening on a call with an adjuster and like writing down suggestions for folks, things for people to say. Um, it's a lot of fun. It, it is like being back on a trial team. Like these are, this is my team. Um, and we, we have our little text group. And so that, that's our culture. Like we, we really enjoy what we're doing. Um, but it's different. You know, our pre litigation lawyers, they are machines. They are, um, you go over there and it's quiet. And folks have their heads down and they are, I mean, when, and that was great for us when we came over because learning that stuff, I mean, you've got to have systems. And as an insurance defense lawyer, I was like, wait, so who do I have to set a claim up with? <laughs> um, and so it's an interesting kind of dynamic. We're almost like a continent. Like, it's like, you've got your, your, your folks up here. You've got the beach down here. You've got the mountains over here. So we don't, I will say this, we do not have one consistent culture, but um, it all works. As long as it works, that's the most important part, right? That's right. All right, so last question for you. Are there any trends you see in dealing with the issues that arise at settlement? I know, you know, a lot of what I see on listservs that I'm a part of, AJ and some of the Florida listservs is dealing with Medicare related issues with the defense insisting upon release language or cutting a check directly to Medicare to reimburse. Are there things like that that you're seeing and dealing with currently? So I think my perspective about that is a little different because I was a defense lawyer and I was burned on, you know, lawyers who did not take care of those liens. So it is not um, offensive to me when a defense lawyer asks to cut the check directly. It's just not because I understand while I know I am not going to burn them. I understand what the history is. Like I get it. Um, I will tell you what I have seen and I've been pleasantly surprised with, and I don't know if you're seeing it. I have had several ERISA plans, um, reduce significantly their liens in 20 folks who I've dealt with before, that would say, no, you know, you've recovered X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're not giving you a reduction, Sarah. Are you crazy? You know, like they will tell you to go jump in a lake very quickly. Um, and I don't know if it's COVID or, you know, and if they are attempting to put more money in the hands of, of people. I don't know what has happened, but I have seen pleasantly a shift. The last four cases I've resolved, I've been able to get reductions on an ERISA plan that I just threw a Hail Mary and, you know, told my client, they're going to tell us to jump in the lake and, and got the reduction, um, that I asked for. The other thing I have seen Medicare, um, 
I feel like seems to be slowing down. And you tell me if, if you've seen this too. And I don't know if it's because a lot of those folks are working from home. Um, but it is taking us a significant amount of time to receive a demand letter once we have settled a case. Um, I just dispersed a case today that I settled in October. And, and, and my team is, I mean, we are a well-oiled machine. As soon as we have an agreement, they are sending a request for a demand letter. Um, and it took us that long to get, I mean, it took us until a few weeks ago to get the demand letter. And then we had to get the check from the insurance company. So I definitely think that's something lawyers um, need to advise their clients of. Um, and we usually will say it takes, you know, it may take up to 60 days. <laughs> um, but man, I, so I don't know. Have you seen that slow down? I think that we've seen just in general across the board, some slowdowns have not seen ERISA self-funded plans have a heart like you're talking about. So that's maybe a little unusual. Maybe it's just, it's just me. Better, it's just me Jason. Yeah. Maybe it's, <laughs> Maybe it's Sarah's uh, expert, you know, way of going about it. Um, you know, with Medicare, it's it's really all about the process. And, you know, because we have a team that that's all they do day in, day out, they're usually right on the timeframes and can get things within the normal timeframes. But Medicare does have its timeframes. And I do think that there are some issues with people working remote. We've seen it with Medicaid agencies across the country and, you know, it's just part of, I think, some of the, the you know, fallout from COVID and, and the remote situation that we've got. But, you know, hopefully over time that's going to dissipate and things will, will go back a little more to normal. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I'm hopeful as well that that, that delay will, will ease up. I, you know, we've, we've had... Um, we've had some success in, in getting, um, other letters. So it's really random, like when it happens. Um, and I, I will say, I think that that can make an argument for why the defense needs to send, go ahead and send the money and hold it in trust and, and get a decent agreement going, um, that you will protect the lien because, you know, this lady sat without, and it was a $500 Medicare. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it, it did not need to hold up her entire settlement disbursement, but. I mean, that, that, that is one thing that when I talk about this subject and do CLEs is I, I do recommend that the parties be collaborative when it comes to Medicare at settlement, because doing that protects the injury victim. It protects the insurer, which does have risk and exposure under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. You know, there's there's broad, broad, uh, you know, potential targets for Medicare, the government to go after. And they've become very aggressive about it with Treasury and, you know, the Department of Justice going after personal injury firms that have not done what they were supposed to do. So I, I think it's a, it, it is and should be a more collaborative process, particularly because now defendants have to report every settlement with Medicare beneficiaries and just collaborating on those issues alone are so important because it avoids having a second final demand issued because the defendant reports a different date of accident than plaintiff counsel does. I mean, there's so many little things that you really have to be cognizant of with Medicare these days that it really should be more of a collaborative process. But I would say that 99.9% .9 of the time, that's just not happening, even though it really should. Yeah, I, I, I am, again, having the benefit of being on the defense. So many of the lawyers that I deal with are people I had relationships with. Um, and so it makes those collaborations a little easier. Um, I, I will tell you another thing that we are experiencing, which I don't know if you've seen this and I would absolutely warn lawyers about, you know, the mail delays, which have not really resolved themselves. You have a certain amount of time, obviously to pay, to satisfy your, your lien once you receive that demand letter. And so I have, um, had to write a couple of checks, 
you know, for that interest. Cause I never, you know, assess that to my clients. Um, because the checks didn't get there in time, yeah. you know, and I don't know if there's a resolution to that, but I don't like fighting with the federal government. So <laughs> I'm just going to write my check and, uh, overnight it the next time. Yeah. You, you really have to, to be cognizant of that time frame too, because they, they're, they're sticklers. It gets referred over to treasury and, you know, we, we have a lot of cases where we're, we're contacted after it's at Treasury, and then it's it's a real problem once it gets to Treasury for collection to get a resolution. So you really got to make sure, especially with, like you said, the mail delays now that you're dealing with it in a timely fashion so you don't wind up paying interest because they do assess that interest. And it, it starts, you know, 30 days from the final demand and keeps accruing. It is the thing I harp on the most. What typically happens, you know, here is folks, you know, their staff get the letter, they put the amount in the file and they don't, no one calendars it. You know, if, if you haven't told your team, hey, here's the issue. When that comes in, we've got, it has to go on the calendar. It is just like a, you know, anything else that, that is time sensitive it has to be calendared. And so I think a lot of, there's a, a disconnect between lawyers and their teams who are open in their mail in regards to that issue. And, and you're, you're right. You get that phone call from the client that says, Hey, I'm They're garnishing the treasuries, garnishing my disability or they're garn, you know, yeah. and then it's, it is difficult to resolve because you know, yeah. it only had to happen to me once for, for me to learn that lesson. Um, but it's something that we try to harp on because I, I think it is, you know, that, that language with the deadline is buried in that letter. <laughs> and so yeah. you're like looking for your number and you skip over, like, look, it has to be paid on this date. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think Medicare compliance for law firms is, is a bigger issue than most law firms recognize. And that's one of the things I do try to, you know, emphasize with law firms, whether you outsource to a company like us or have an internal program, have something that identifies those, those Medicare beneficiaries, particularly now, because, you know, it's not just conditional payments, but if that person elects into Part C Advantage plans, those plans have become very aggressive using the double damages provision and going after law firms and insurers for double the lien amount when they're not reimbursed and Medicare doesn't tell you if the client's transitioned over to part C, they'll just tell you, oh, there's no lien from Medicare. Well, but there could be a part C lien. So, you know, unfortunately it's just a lot of complication for, for law firms to contend with when these cases are almost to the finish line. We, we, we refer to that to, as the case after the case, because there's so many little issues that can crop up and cause, you know, problems for law firms. And that, I mean, it's, you know, why, why we're in business, but you know, it, yes. for lawyers, it's tough. I absolutely, you know, having the relationship with Marcy that we have has just been, I mean, and having folks, you know, I know a lot of our lawyers will get her on the phone and, you know, we'll get that Medicare set aside opinion. And it's almost like, you know, it's like having a whole different, another team in your back pocket. And, and so as a man, when I was managing, as a managing attorney, what I loved was, okay, you guys, this is, this was an issue. And so I'm going to educate the entire firm and bring someone in that can speak to us about it and, and talk to us about what to be on the lookout for. And so we, you know, have, have on our intake side, make sure that we say to folks, empty it. Go to your wallet and pull out every insurance card you have and take a picture yep. of it and text it to me. Any insurance card that you use, send that to me. And, and I think if you deal with it on the front end, um, it, I, I, what I have seen is in the desire to be more automated, I think because lawyers are not like when I was coming up, I'm sure you as well, when medical records came in, I reviewed them. I poured through them. I and I could spot on a medical bill. Oh shoot, Medicare Part C, or this is you know something we need to deal with. I think, um, and and I appreciate you know the idea that law firms need to scale, but I think that there are some things that are being lost 
in our attempts to scale and our attempts to automate um, that we are missing with our, our staff. Like, yes, you, it's great to have someone to do it, but you have to educate them on what they need to be looking for. You can't just expect it to happen, you know, innately. Um, so that's, that's great advice. I mean, that's part of what I talk about too, is, you know, at intake, make sure that you're doing your, your, uh, your detective work, know exactly what benefits that client's receiving because not only for liens, but also, you know, if they're on Medicaid, making sure that you don't destroy their eligibility. So it's critical that that part of just the intake process and knowing exactly what you're dealing with and then updating it when you get to settlement, because sometimes people, you know, move between different benefits or become eligible for additional benefits during the litigation. So that really is critical to make sure ultimately that you cover your bases. Right. Well, that's a that's a great place to stop. Thank you to my guest, Sarah Williams, for joining me today on Try Lawyer View and tune in next time for the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Try Lawyer View. You can find more at trialawyerview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.